So the Jews kept the Feast of Tabernacles. And then what we see is that that week-long feast of celebration ended with a day, which would have been on the 23rd of the month, a day which was a solemn assembly. And then chapter 9 tells us that on the 24th day of the month, which was two days after the Feast of the Tabernacles ended, the people gathered together again. And our passage tells us that they gathered together not in feasting and joy and and celebration, but they, they gathered together in mourning with sackcloth on their bodies. They gathered together to fast and they put dirt on their heads and they gathered together with a time of confession of sin. Verse 3 tells us, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Think back 24 days earlier to when they, again, as I mentioned, sat for a six-hour sermon. And now they've gathered again together, uh, they've gathered, gathered together again to hear three hours of preaching and then another three hours of worship and confession of sin. So another six hours total that they're gathered together. What we see here in this passage, Nehemiah chapter 9, is really one of the great prayers of the Bible. One of the great prayers in, in all of Scripture. And what we notice here right from the beginning, I don't think we should so easily toss this aside. If you look at the the language here, in Nehemiah 8.1, when they gathered together uh, 24 days earlier, remember what they asked. They asked Ezra if he would bring out to them the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And as I mentioned last week, when they gathered together and, and gave this book such honor and such attention, such rapt attention for six hours, it was because ultimately they knew that who they were listening to was not so much Ezra, even though he was preaching the sermon, it was not even so much Moses, even though he was the one who had penned the words that they were hearing, but they were listening ultimately to the God who was behind everything that had been written. And so that's why they were giving such attention to it. And now you can see here, 24 days later, when they gather together again, it's interesting, in Nehemiah 9.3, the wording has changed. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. So much so are they just enveloped by this word and convinced that this word is the word of God that now Moses has has been left out of the equation. It is now the same book, the same Pentateuch, the same Torah, but now Moses has in some sense faded into the background and it is only the Lord their God who they gather to hear. As I was thinking about that this week, I thought that's in fact what, what I hope happens every Sunday here at Meadowcroft. I hope that when you leave here, that you not so much think, what a great sermon Max, pre- Max preached, I, I hope you don't hate it either, but I hope that what you walk away from more than anything else is what a great God we serve, what a great Savior we have, 
And that's what you see here, that they gather together, and that's why they don't care that they're there for six hours, because they're there to hear the Word of God. Now, it's important to remind ourselves of the order that is found in the universe, because we can so easily forget where we get our life why we are here this morning, why they were there gathered. They had to be reminded. And so in verse 6, when they begin this prayer, when they begin this great confession of sin, look at what they begin with. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. You have made the earth and all that is in it. You have made the seas, all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And even the host of heaven worships you. Interestingly, they have just heard read again from the Pentateuch. No doubt, they heard the first few chapters of Genesis. And so reflecting on that, they are reminded again of what the order of creation is. They begin by acknowledging in this prayer of confession that God is the creator and the sustainer of everything. And that's, again, getting back to our own worship service here, that's one of the things that we try to work in to every worship service. No matter what the, the main point of a particular passage is, no matter the fact that we, we're going to confess our sin later and, and we're going to petition God for his help, one of the things that we want to include in every service is the acknowledgement of who God is versus who we are. That God is the God of all, including us. And we see here that God not only created the earth and everything in the earth, but he created heaven and everything in heaven. He created the visible realm, and he also created the invisible realm. And as I pondered that this week, I was reminded that I exist solely by the power of God that you sit here this morning, that you exist by God's power alone. You did not create yourself. Your parents didn't even create you. As much as we appreciate fathers today, fathers did not do the creating. There is one who knit you together in the womb, and that is God alone. But see, it's more than that. It's more than just they're acknowledging that God created them. It's more that they're just acknowledging that they exist because of God. Look, they're acknowledging that God, even in that very moment, was sustaining them. Look at that. You preserve all of them. See, we don't believe in a God that just created us, wound us up like a clock, and then walked away. What we believe is that you exist this morning because God created you and you sit here able to listen to this sermon, that you sit here with a heart that is beating, that you sit here drawing breath, that I stand here speaking to you and that your ears can hear and understand what I'm saying solely by God's power. That God not only created you, but every second he is sustaining you by his power. That if God were to remove his sustaining power from you as he does 
to millions every day on this earth, you would drop dead immediately. And so worship should always begin with acknowledging and praising God for who he is because I fear, Christian, if you're like me, you too often forget. You forget who you owe your existence to. How many of you, how many of you, just don't raise your hand, but just think, how many of you wake up every morning and before you get out of bed, before you put your slippers on and and pour yourself a cup of coffee and turn on the TV or listen to the radio or take your shower or brush your teeth, before you do any of that, how many of you wake up, open your eyes, and thank God that you're alive? How many of you wake up, open your eyes, and thank God that you drew breath this morning because of his sustaining grace? Or how many of you hop out of bed and go about your day as though you were sustaining yourself, as though everything that you're doing that day is just something that you can easily do. Ask someone who has lost the ability to do one of those things how much they wish they could have it back. I was having lunch with a member this week and we were sitting there eating our meal and both of us kind of got into this sort of cycle of grumbling about things. Uh, and both of us grumbling about different things in our lives and different things going on and, and all of this. And, and then at, at some point, I was reminded of this passage. And I said, actually, you know what? <laughs> we ought to just be thankful right now for everything that we have. God is creating and sustaining us. Look, at we have this meal. We're, we're sitting here talking. We can see each other. We can understand what we're saying. And immediately the grumbling went away. <laughs> Immediately we said, yeah, what are we complaining about? This is great. (laughs) We so often easily forget. Notice here in verses 7 and 8 that God is, is not only the creator and the sustainer of everything, but that The people in this prayer, they acknowledge that that he is also the covenant-making God of specific people that he has created. That all people on earth owe God for their existence and their ability to function, but there are some on this earth that owe God an extra debt of gratitude for reaching into their lives and choosing them to be his people to be the people who know him and worship him. Look in here, I mean, Abraham, they even says his name was Abram at first, he was just as lost as anyone else. Abram had nothing to bring to the table, he was a pagan. He was just doing what he had grown up uh, being taught to do, worshiping idols, doing nothing for God. And yet God reached down, look, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. You gave him the name Abraham, and you made with him a covenant. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. God creates and sustains all people everywhere, but he chooses some to be his covenant people in the covenant of grace. See, Christian, you exist because God created you. You 
breathe this morning because God is sustaining you, but you are worshiping this morning because God chose you. Notice this, we see this in verses 1 through 5 before we get into uh, the verses 6 through 8. Notice here what God is referred to as four times in these five verses, four times. Uh, you want to notice that when you're reading scripture and you see this repetition. Four times God is referred to as the Lord our God. In Hebrew, that word Lord there that is all capital L-O-R-D, that's not, when we, when we use the word Lord like that, we, we usually don't think of it as God's name. But when we see it in all capitals, that's exactly what it is. That, that word, Lord, in our English Bibles is Yahweh. It is God's personal name of the covenant God for his people. And then when you see God there, the Lord, our God, it's the name or the word Elohim, which is really the Hebrew word for the creator God, the creator of all things. And so four times they're saying, you are Yahweh, our Elohim. And so they're there to hear from and to worship and to confess to their God. And we do the same thing. When we gather together, we say, we're here to worship our God. He is our God, and yet we have to be clear when we say that, because I think so many would hear that phrase, and especially today, when we hear everyone talking about their truth and things of that nature, people hear us say, well, Jesus is our God, or he's our Savior, and they see that as Jesus or God is somehow our creation, that that there are many gods to choose from, many philosophies to choose from, many things that help get us through the day, and we just gather together because Jesus just happens to be ours, the one that we chose, the one that, in a sense, we created. Now, the thing that we have to be clear about is what they're saying here. They are saying that Yahweh is their God. In fact... If Yahweh is not their God, then they're not saved. If Jesus, Jesus is Lord of all, when he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is their Lord. Jesus is Lord whether somebody likes it or not. But if Jesus is not your Lord, then you are not saved. But what we have to understand is that when God's people gather together to worship our God, what we're not saying is that we chose him. What we're saying is that he chose us. We're saying that he is his own person, that he is God, that we are his creation, that he is real, and that we know him because he first knew us, that we loved him because he first loved us. He is not our own because we own him. He is our own because he owns us. As his children. And so they begin there. They begin there by reminding themselves very clearly of where everything stands in the created order. That there is God and there is them. There's the creator and then there's the creation. And if that is the case, if they are God's people because he created them, that he sustains them, that he chose them, that he did everything for them, then what is it that they owe him back? 
Well, in fact, they owe him everything. They owe to God every second of their existence. In fact, every human being does. We owe it to God to honor and to worship and to give him every second of our day, every day of our lives. We owe him literally everything. And so we owe him complete and total and perfect honor and worship and obedience. And that's what the people of Israel owed him. That's what they're reminding themselves, that, that they're not people who were owed all of this stuff by God. No, they begin with they were people who were lost and were found. Well, how did the people of Israel do? If they owed God everything, if they owed him perfect and complete obedience their entire life, how did they do? How does the Old Testament say that they did? Well, look at this prayer, because the prayer basically sums it up. The prayer is summed up in really the title of this sermon. They have been wicked, and God has been faithful. That sums up the entire thing. Notice in verses 9 to 21, and I'm not going to read this because it's so long, but notice just these bullet points here. Notice God's mercy to Israel. God, he saw their affliction. He heard their cry. He led them out of slavery with with what would become and, and would be repeated over and over again in the Old Testament as the greatest miracle God ever did before anyone's eyes, the parting of the Red Sea. You can imagine what that looked like. And they remind themselves over and over again of what God did that day to bring them. I mean, it was so miraculous that there's no way that that wasn't, uh, there's no way that that wasn't God leading them out. God not only led them through the Red Sea, but then he led them the whole way in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It says to light the way for them. God then came down. He gave them his law, his Ten Commandments, to guide them right rules, true laws, that if they followed his laws, they would thrive as a people. Just do this sometime. Just go home and read through the Ten Commandments and imagine if every person in this world followed them exactly. Would we need one police officer? Would we need one marriage counselor? If everyone followed the Ten Commandments perfectly, we would have a perfect world. God gave that law to them and said, here's how I want you to live, and you will thrive as people. God gave them bread from the sky and water from a rock. How much more could you be provided for? What was Israel's response? Well, we see in the same section what seems like unbelievable ingratitude to God. Even after all of that, the people of Israel refused to obey God, and they were not mindful of the wonders that he had performed. Even after all of that, amazingly, they appointed a leader to take them back into slavery into Egypt. And if you go and read that, why do they want to go back into slavery in Egypt? For the leeks and the onions. Even after all of that, the people of Israel make for themselves a golden calf. And when they look at this golden calf, they say, you're the one that brought us up out of Egypt. 
Notice the language here. Twice it says that they stiffened their neck. It's interesting, Dr. Greg Beale, uh, a professor, was former a professor at Westminster Seminary, he wrote a book called You Become What You Worship. And if you see the language in here that, that Israel repeated, they stiffened their neck. What do we know of idols? The Bible says over and over again, idols like this golden calf are nothing. They can't move, they can't speak, they're stiff. And when Israel began to worship idols, their neck began to stiffen. They began to look like the idols that they worshipped. And that's why it's so important to be in worship every week. Because the world throws at you all week idols to worship. And all week you can go after those idols and you can begin to look like them. And it's when you come here and you're once again brought before the God of the Bible that your heart begins to soften and you're once again bent back towards resembling the God who rescued you rather than the idols that this world throws at you. Well, how does God respond to their actions? One scholar writes this, they lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing. Let me ask you, how would you respond? How would you respond to someone if you gave them everything? You poured everything into them. You gave them everything that they have and they slapped you in the face, spit in your face and walked away. How did God respond? How could God have responded? God could have responded with immediate judgment. The wages of sin is death. That hasn't changed. They owed him everything and they gave him nothing. And how did God respond? We see here amazingly in verses 17 to 20, yet you are a God ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and you did not forsake them even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God. Yet in your great mercies, you did not forsake them. You, for 40 years, sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. And then you see God's mercy to Israel again in verses 22 to 25. God then gives them kingdoms and peoples and allots them every corner. God brings them into the promised land. He multiplies their children as the stars of heaven. He subdues the Canaanites. He gives them fortified cities. He gives them a rich land, houses full of good things. He gives them cisterns that are already hewn. And yet we see in the same passage, again, Israel's ingratitude. Nevertheless, despite all of that, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets whom God sent to warn them. Turn back to me, and they killed the people that came to speak to them that way. I've read this to you before, but in one of the saddest passages, I think, in all of Scripture, it comes from Ezekiel chapter 16. As God, the Lord, describes his relationship with Israel. Listen to what he says. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you. 
to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. For you were cast out into the open field. You were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall. Yet you were naked and bare. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth. I shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful. You advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty. And you played the whore because of your renown. You took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you. And you made for yourselves images of men, and with them you played the whore. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations, you did not remember the days of your youth. When you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Christian, have you forgotten the days of your youth? Have you forgotten that the Lord called you out of hopelessness when you were wallowing in your blood? What did they do? Well, God finally gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And then we see this cycle that repeats over and over and over again. God gave them into the hands of their enemies, and so the people of Israel cry out to God because of their suffering. Then God hears from heaven and saves them from their enemies. And then the people of Israel go right back to forsaking God. And again and again and again we see this. You know, we see that a lot, don't we? We see people cry out to God because of suffering. And then when they suffer no longer, they seek God no longer. You know, I wonder if Christians in America will really start taking worshiping and reading of Scripture and praying seriously when we begin facing hardships and trial and face more persecution than we face. Maybe then we will say, I need this more than I need anything else in life. What we see here at the end is that they acknowledge that they were, even as they stand next to that brand new wall, not free from hardship and suffering anymore. It's not as though God led them into into the promised land, that they've rebuilt the wall and now they're fine. They're acknowledging that, that things are not fine. They still are surrounded by enemies. They still have threats. 
And their big thing that they say a few times is that they're still slaves. They're still being ruled by Persia. They're not their own. And they will continue to be because Rome will conquer and then Rome will take over. And they will be subjects to Rome. And yet, notice, even though they say that they're in great distress, even though they say that things aren't totally fine, notice that after acknowledging who God is and who they are and what they owed God and what they gave to God instead, notice how their hearts have been humbled. Look at verses 32 through 33. Now therefore our, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you. They're acknowledging they have hardship. That has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Please, Lord, don't forget that we're still suffering. And yet... You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That is how a holy people addresses a holy God. Look at our membership vows again from earlier. You don't have them in front of you, but our membership vows express the humility that comes only from the grace of God. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? And do you resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? You see, from first to last, what we see in these vows, these membership vows that we take, is a complete dependence and reliance upon the grace of God. See, a Christian understands sin. A Christian understands how indebted he is. But friends, the mark of a Christian is not morbidity. The mark of a Christian is humility. The mark of a Christian is not joyless fear of God, but joyful thankfulness to God for what he's given. A Christian realizes that he is a sinner, unable to free himself, but that he has been saved and preserved by grace alone. And a Christian realizes every day, if we're honest with ourselves, just how far short we still fall of honoring the God who did all of this for us. You see, in, in so many ways, Israel is a picture of us. Because despite all that we've been given, we still run back to slavery in Egypt, don't we? We still run back to leeks and onions in slavery. Just a quick story. Um, I was uh, just thinking this week, one morning, as I was trying to uh, get online on my computer and the Wi-Fi wasn't working. And then I was, uh, while waiting for that to somehow start working, I decided I would go and brew myself some coffee. And I like whole bean coffee that I grind right there in a little grinder so that it's really fresh. And I just happened to be able to get 
uh, Starbucks whole bean coffee from Costco because it was on sale. So I had pretty much the exact coffee that I wanted right there that, that morning, and I pour it into the grinder while my Wi-Fi is sorting itself out, and I go to grind the coffee, and then the grinder stops working. So I start getting really angry and agitated because my Wi-Fi is not working and because my whole bean coffee grinder is not working. And just as I'm starting to get really agitated, I think to myself, <laughs> first world problems. Here I am worried about coffee grinder not working and Wi-Fi not working. Oh, I can't believe I'm, I'm thinking that way. How stupid of me. And, <laughs> and then Luke and, and Michelle come walking in the door. And I guess Michelle still saw some agitation on my face. And she said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, why not? And I said, well, for one, my Wi-Fi is not working. I don't know what's going on with that. And secondly, my coffee grinder stopped working. And Luke says, first world problems. <laughs> now, I had just said that to myself 30 seconds earlier. Now, do you think I looked over at Luke and said, you're right, Luke. I just said that. Luke, thank you for pointing out my selfishness to me. Luke, I'm so glad that you're trying to make me more holy and that you're being my conscience, that you're a Christian brother who's bringing my sin up to my face and reminding me of how far short I fall. Think that's what I said? <laughs> you probably all know the answer. I said, Luke, you're making me really angry right now. Just stop. <laughs> Why? I had to go back later, like four days later, I, I went to Luke and I explained the whole thing to him and I said, will you please forgive me? You had just said what I was just thinking. But I said, Luke, Luke do you see how deep our sin goes? That, that I rebuked you for something that I just thought because I didn't want to hear it from you because I didn't want you to point out my sin to me. Because at the end of the day, I am so much like the people of Israel here. At the end of the day, I, I so often daily return to sinful patterns. And at the end of the day, I still find myself having to turn back to the God who saved me, the chief of sinners. Because at the end of the day, I am the biggest sinner I know. And I am eternally grateful that I have the biggest Savior I know. See, Christian, you ought to be eternally thankful that the God to whom we owe everything is the God who gave everything for us. Our final hymn that we're singing says, Your grace that I cannot explain, not by my earthly wisdom, the Prince of Life, without a stain, was traded for this sinner. By grace I am redeemed. By grace I am restored. And now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, of your grace and your mercy despite all of the times that we go back to our sin. And we're so thankful, Lord, that one day we will be free from our sin when you clothe us in perfect righteousness in glory and we are made glorified, unable to sin again. 
We thank you for Jesus, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.